We are starting our new summer series called God's King, and we're going to spend nine weeks studying the life of David. We're going to mostly be studying David's life from First and Second Samuel. And First Samuel is primarily about three men. It follows the lives of Samuel, Saul, and David. And in the chapter that we're going to study together this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 16, this is the first time where all three of them sort of come together. And this is a very pivotal moment in the story of 1 Samuel, really in the story of Israel. And in this story, it's a turning point in the lives of Saul and David, although neither one of them really understands what's happening. And even Samuel's kind of a little bit clueless in this story. But we're going to learn this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 16 that there's a problem with Saul that there's a problem with David, that there's a problem with Samuel, and then lastly, that there's a problem with me. So let's look together in 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're looking in verse, uh, verse 1. It says that the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. How long will you grieve, Saul? The first thing we see in this text is the problem with Saul. Now, how did the people of Israel get where they are at this point in history? God chose a man named Abraham, and and that man became a family, and that family became a people. And and, and one particular part of that that family, that people, were, were 12 sons of Jacob. Those 12 sons became 12 tribes, and those tribes sort of grew up and got bigger, and they became a federation of tribes who were led by judges, and that's where we have the book in the Old Testament called Judges. Eventually, those tribes came to Samuel, who was the prophet leader of the people of God, and they said, we want to be like all the other nations. They have king. We want a king. And so God allows them. Now God warns them. He says, this is not what you want. And Samuel's heart is broken because Samuel knows that Israel has a king. It's God in heaven. But Israel wants a king of their own choosing. They want a human king. And so God says, yes, you can have a king. But he warns them what it's going to cost them and what it's going to mean. But they still say, we want a king. The first king of Israel, his name is Saul. Saul starts out great. I mean, he's a big dude. He's a big, strong dude. He looks the part. He looks like a king. And he's even humble at first about being chosen to be the king. But over time, something gets exposed in Saul's heart. And what we learn about Saul is that he's a prideful man. And the problem with Saul is pride. In in fact, when Samuel has to confront Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15 about what he's done wrong, this is what Samuel says to Saul. He says, when you were small in your own eyes, didn't God choose you and make you king? The problem with Saul is that he went from being small in his own eyes to being big in his own eyes. And Saul struggled with pride. And Saul's pride actually manifested itself sort of in an unusual way. His pride led to insecurity. And sometimes we don't think of insecurity as pride. But insecurity actually is a form of pride. Because pride is not thinking you are the best or that you are better. Pride is thinking that you are the center of everything. And insecurity is putting yourself in the center of every situation and then being insecure because of how you are in that situation. And and Saul's pride leads to insecurity where what we learn is that he can't please God because he's too busy trying to please the people. 
And in a moment of wanting to please the people instead of pleasing God, pride leads to insecurity, which then leads to disobedience, where Saul disobeys a command from God because he wants to please the people. And disobedience in our lives and in our hearts, it always leads to death. And the kingdom is torn from Saul. And God removes his spirit from Saul as king. Now, at this point in the story, Saul technically is still king. He still has the position. He still has the power. But God has taken his anointing off of Saul, and he's going to choose a different king. The problem with Saul was pride. Now, what about you and I? Do we ever struggle with pride? You know, there's three clues to whether or not you are struggling with pride. And the first one is this, that you're in love with your perspective. You love the way you see things. You're so confident in your perspective on everything. And if anybody questions your opinions or your perspective, in fact, you haven't learned something new in a long time. You can't remember the last time you said to someone, that's a really good point. Maybe I should change my mind. You are so in love with your perspective. And there's, there's really two ways that this happens, or two things that pride will allow us to do or cause us to do. Pride will keep us in seeing or believing that we're too far from something to actually see it rightly. Some of us are too far from something to actually understand it completely, but we leap to conclusions and we make all sorts of decisions about what's true and what's not true, and some of us just don't know. And we live in a culture in the world today where people feel like they're an expert because they've searched Wikipedia and they've Googled a few things and they read a couple articles and now they're an expert on something that they have zero actual education or training in. And pride will cause you to put way too much trust in your perspective, and you'll never see how far away, and you'll never realize, I actually need to step closer. I need to look closer. I need to listen. I need to hear different perspectives. Pride will close your ears to other perspectives. It will cause you to love your own. But the other thing is, is that not only will pride not allow you to see that you're too far from something, it also will not allow you to see that you're too close to something. Sometimes we're too close to something to see it for what it actually is. If you stand very close to an elephant, right up against it, you can't really see it for what it is. You would walk away with a very limited description to other people of what an elephant actually is. Sometimes we have to take a step back, but pride sometimes says, no, I know everything I need to know. But some of you, some of the things you feel strongest about in your life and you won't be challenged on and you won't let other people correct you on or bring new perspective to you on, it's because you are emotionally too close to that matter. You're, you're personally too close to it. And sometimes the best thing that we do is step back. But pride won't let you do that because you love your perspective. The second thing about pride is it will make you fall in love with your preferences. And we really are a nation that loves our preferences. We love to have things our way. I'm the same way. I go out to a restaurant, I order a steak medium rare, which is the way God intended steak to be eaten. (laughs) Then I want it to come that way. And if it doesn't come that way, I'm going to send it back, right? We want things done our way. We live in a nation where we've worked hard so that we can have things our way, and that's all fine. But every now and then, there's got to come a time where we lay down some of our own preferences for the good of others. Christians are not just willing to lay down their preferences. Christians are eager to lay down their preferences because of Christ and what he laid down for us. And we're called in the New Testament to prefer one another to even ourselves, to consider each other before we consider ourselves. Talk about something that is so against the grain in the American society, to consider somebody else. Why, if, I, if I don't think about them, then who's going to look out for me? But we have a God who is mindful of us and is thinking of us at all times. And, as, and when we believe that God is always thinking of us, it frees us to stop always thinking about ourselves. And we can start thinking about others. 
The other thing that pride will do is it will make you in love with power. And the sick thing about power is it, it, it has a way of causing you to always need more of it, right? Nobody taps out and says, that's enough power. Every person in our world who has power just wants a little more power. And it can be power on a large scale. It could be a political power. It could be a social power. It could be relational power. It could be influence. It could be education as power. These things are not inherently bad of themselves, of course. But when we begin to fall in love with this sort of power, it becomes a problem for us. And if you look at the kingdom of God, the people of God, the church of God around the world and throughout history, every time the church gets access to worldly power, it actually becomes a detriment and a distraction to the mission of God. But the places around the globe where the church is growing the most and the places throughout history where the church has done the most good for God are places where people had no power and they had no hope for earthly, worldly power. And so they put all their trust in Christ and they were humble servants of the kingdom of God. Your perspective, your preferences, your power will make you big in your own eyes. And that was the problem with Saul. And so the question before us this morning is, are you large in your own eyes or are you small in your own eyes? Can you see beyond your preferences, beyond your perspective to see other people? God rejected Saul as king because Saul had first rejected God as king. At this point, it's become so bad in Saul's life that he's being oppressed by evil spirits. And if you read the rest of 1 Samuel chapter 16 later today, you'll see this. The evil spirits were oppressing Saul. And so when God says to Samuel, I've rejected Saul as king. Now go, I have another king that I want to choose for myself. Saul was chosen for the people, but David is going to be chosen for God. Samuel has a problem. Samuel says to God, that's a, that's a good plan and all, but it's going to get me killed. Like Saul's crazy. He's insecure. And if he hears that I'm going on the search for a new king, I'm dead. And so the Lord says to Samuel, okay, well, just go to Bethlehem. And all you say to the elders of Bethlehem is I'm here to perform a sacrifice, which is something the prophet priest Samuel would have done. And I want to gather people together. And, I, and by the way, I want Jesse, this man Jesse, and I want his sons to be there. And so that's what happens. He goes into Bethlehem and the, the elders are nervous. And so he says to them in verse five, I've come peaceably. I'm not here for trouble, and I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, Samuel looked at Eliab. Now, Eliab is the oldest son in Jesse's home. He's the big guy. He's got muscles. He's got muscles on his muscles, right? This is a big, strong dude. And Samuel looks at him and thought, surely this is the guy. Look how impressive he is. He must be the one. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And then this is one of the key verses this morning, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him, just like he had rejected Saul. I have not chosen this guy. Yes, he looks impressive. Yes, he's big and he's strong, but I have not chosen him. Why? For the Lord sees not as we do. The man, humankind, looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, on the heart. And so Jesse keeps calling up his other sons, one after another, and each time the Lord says to Samuel, it's not him, it's not him, it's not him. And then we get to this point in the story where Samuel says to Jesse, are these all your sons? Because we've gone through all of them. And Jesse says, um, no, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. He's not even here. 
And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, and we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And what we come to at this point in the story is the problem with David. I don't know if you've ever felt overlooked in your life. Um, when a family has their second child, very often the first child struggles with that. We have uh, Joel and Alicia Reed had a little beautiful baby boy a couple weeks ago. We have six other uh, ladies in our church that are currently expecting, and three of them are expecting their second. And so uh, little Essie Bowers, little Judah Shirley, and little Eleanor Anderson are about to have their worlds rocked. Because <laughs> they are not going to be the center of the universe in their house anymore. And in fact, sometimes when the second child shows up, the first child does what's called regressing. They move backwards with their behavior. Previously, they were potty trained. All of a sudden, they're going in their diapers again. Why? Because they see all the attention that the baby is getting from mom and dad, and they think maybe the way to get attention is to go back to that form of behavior. And so we need to pray for Judah and Essie and Eleanor uh, because they're about to endure this in the next few months. David's overlooked. He's genuinely overlooked in this story. Now, why? It's a couple reasons. First off, he is the youngest. There's seven or eight of them. We don't know for sure because two different parts of Scripture sort of, it's a little confusing. But there's either seven or eight sons. And either way, J David is the youngest. And, he, and, and as the youngest, uh, he's not really respected. In fact, in the Hebrew, when, when um, Jesse said that David is the youngest, that Hebrew word doesn't just mean age. It's also his way of saying he's the tiniest. He's the littlest. A modern phrase is this, he's the runt of the litter. And this was a time in history uh, where society practiced what is known as primogeniture, which simply means the oldest got everything. The oldest son would get the lion's share of the inheritance, and everybody else was left to fight over the scraps. And so David just was born into a terrible situation, very unlucky for him. The seventh or eighth son, far down the line, he's not even invited. They don't even bring him along. There's like stay. There's like modern day. There's or this is like like the story of Cinderella. He's like stuck in the not in the attic, but he's stuck in the field taking care of sheep. He's he's not even invited. He's not even. See, I used to think of this story this way. This is a story I heard a lot growing up. My my name is David, so I always loved learning about David, especially the ruddy, beautiful eyes and handsome part. I really always connected with that. I received that as a word from the Lord, but. Um, when I, used to, when I used to study this story, I always pictured it as Jesse went to, or sorry, Samuel went to Jesse's house, and all the sons came downstairs, and, and they all lined up, and no, 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 and then, and then Samuel goes, is there another? And Jesse goes, oh yeah, David, he's right out back, uh, and they opened up the door, and they yelled out to him, David, come on in. That's not what happened. Samuel came to make a sacrifice in the town of Bethlehem. There would have been a very specific place in Bethlehem where they made sacrifices. So Jesse and his sons left their house to come to this special sacrifice. And David wasn't even invited. He's back home. And not only that, but you know what I realized this week studying this story? David also wasn't consecrated. 
It said that Jesse, or sorry, Samuel consecrated Jesse and his sons. Consecration back then, basically kids, it was like taking a bath. You would wash yourself, you would wash your clothes, you would smell your best, put your Sunday best on, and you would show up. David was not consecrated. How do we know that? Because he was working in the fields. You don't get cleaned up and put your best clothes on and go uh, take care of sheep. David is in the fields. He stinks like a shepherd. He stinks like sheep. And they go and they get him and they bring him. And what I love about this is that even though David wasn't consecrated by man, he was chosen by God. And he was anointed by God. And some of you may feel like you've showed up and you're not very special. And this really is. What is the problem with David? The problem with David is simply this. He's he's ordinary. He's ordinary. You know, in our society today, one of the worst things you can be is ordinary. They did a poll of 3,000 children in America and in the UK. And they said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the vast majority of the kids said they want to be a YouTube star. I mean, it is what they watch, it is what they enjoy, and it's fine. But what they're really saying is, I want to be famous. Not so much I want to be productive, I want to make a difference, I want to help other people. I'm not saying YouTube stars can't do those things. But what they're really saying is, I want to be famous. And here's what I hear, I don't want to be ordinary. We live in a world that celebrates Saul's and ignores David's. But we serve a God who chooses David's and rejects Saul's. Because being, an or, being ordinary is not an obstacle to God using you. In fact, being ordinary, if you feel ordinary this morning, you are in the perfect place for God to use you because it gives God the opportunity to do extraordinary things through you and get all the glory and all the honor and all of the praise. And this is what we see in David. And, and, and Samuel anoints him, and he anoints him right in the midst of his brothers. I'm sure that was a big moment for the little guy for David to kind of get chosen right in front of all his brothers and anointed to be king. God chose David for himself and put his spirit on him. Now my question to you this morning is, you know, what disqualifies you from being used by God? What have you believed? What lies have you believed uh, that makes you feel like you're not invited, you're not consecrated, you're not good enough? Notice that even those who were close to David, his own dad didn't really believe in him. His own dad. And sometimes the people who are closest to us, the people who should support us and believe us, encourage us. How many of you have learned that sometimes in life it's the people closest to us that hurt us the most? And some of you may have grown up in homes where you didn't have parents who believed in you and supported you and spoke life over you and their lack of words over you or their painful words to you, their negative hurtful words to you still are shaping you and affecting you. And this story reminds us that nobody else gets the final word over you because when God comes along and he chooses you for himself, it's enough and it makes you enough he chooses you and he anoints you everybody else saw this this runt of the litter shepherd boy and 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 God saw a future king and God saw a, a mighty warrior a giant slayer we'll learn about that next week God saw a man who would write songs that we still sing in our churches to this day I don't care how ordinary you feel that is not an obstacle for God What is an obstacle for God is Saul's problem, which is pride. Pride will limit what God can do in us and through us. Be encouraged this morning. God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And if you're faithful, available, and teachable, God can use you in his kingdom. Our final uh, point this morning before we close is the problem with Samuel. The problem with Samuel is he can't see David for who he is. In fact, Samuel is so impressed by outer appearance that he makes an assumption 
Samuel's still living in the past. When he looks at Eliab, you know who Eliab reminded him of? Saul. Big, strong, king-like. Sometimes when we look at people, we jump to all sorts of conclusions, and we, but we can't see. We can't see. My family and I, we love to watch the Food Network, and this past week we were watching Chopped. And one of the secret ingredients in the basket that had to be used was monkfish. Anybody ever, you ever had monkfish? I love monkfish. Monkfish is a, a, a white fish, and it has the texture almost of like a scallop. And I love monkfish. And my mom is Korean, and one of her favorite dishes is this monkfish stew. And, it, it's, and, and so I love monkfish. So I was excited when I heard monkfish. But, but how many of you have ever seen a monkfish? It is one of the ugliest things God ever created. I mean, its face is hideous. And I look at that monkfish and I thought, whoever ate that first was a brave soul. <laughs> you know, and I thought, you know, there's, a, there's an old humorist who said that about an oyster. The first man to eat a ho- oyster was a b- brave soul. Because we look at these things and we're like, that doesn't really look awesome. And I love raw oysters, by the way. But it doesn't really look great. Who was the first person to say, I'm just going to go for it? Thank, thank God for that person because I love oysters. Well, we look at things and we, we, make, uh, we jump to conclusions and we do the same thing with each other. You see somebody, you see how they're dressed, you, you see the way they look, you see the way they act. Maybe in some places you see the color of their skin and you immediately make all sorts of assumptions and you jump to all sorts of conclusions about them. And that's the problem with Samuel is that we think we know somebody simply because we can see him with our eyes. But God wants us to see people with his eyes, to look beyond the superficial and to see the value and the worth in every single individual, every person, an image bearer of God. Jesus did that. You know that. Look at the disciples Jesus chose. They were not impressive. He did not go to the best schools and poach the best students from the other rabbis. He chose the men who no other rabbi would choose. Fishermen, zealots, tax collectors. Because Jesus saw in them what they couldn't even see in themselves. And be encouraged this morning, because even as you're sitting here, Jesus sees in you what you can't even see in yourself. The world needs more people who can see past the outward appearance. And then lastly, as we close, the problem with me. Every romantic comedy basically has the same storyline. Scene one, act one, two people who feel like nobody sees them and never will. Act two... They both see each other, and they begin to fall in love. Act three, they freak out because they realize that person can see me, and they see everything about me, and they see the bad things about me and the things that aren't so great about me. And then in most of them in act four, they resolve it, and they live happily ever after. See, earlier when I said that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, that sounds like good news. Oh, he sees me, he sees me. But act three, we realize, oh, my goodness, he sees me. He sees my heart. He sees my wickedness. He sees the things I try to hide from other people. He sees that sometimes even my best efforts are motivated by a desire to be seen and noticed. And what do we do? What hope do we have? Many years later, David had some terrible mistakes and sins in his life, and we'll study those later this summer. But when he did, he wrote this beautiful psalm of repentance, and in it he says to God, God, would you create in me a new heart. That's the only hope we have. Good news, God sees us. Bad news, God sees us. Great news, Jesus creates new hearts within people who love him and trust him. And there's a prophet in the Old Testament named Ezekiel, and he says this about what Jesus would come to do someday. He says, I will give you a new heart 
and I'll put a new spirit in you. Listen, this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a new heart and you have a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. We can't remove our own heart of stone. Some of you have tried so hard. Stop trying. You can't do that for yourself. Only God can do that for you and give you the soft heart of flesh. And then he says, and I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. How did he do this? When the story we studied this morning, it happened in a small town called Bethlehem. Not a very impressive town at all. And in Bethlehem, God found a king that nobody else would have chosen. And about a thousand years later, we come to that same town, Bethlehem. It's a dark night, and there's a new star in the sky. And again, it's a king that nobody would have chosen or expected. And God sends his son to be our king. And not just to rule our hearts and demand our loyalty, but to give his heart first for us and to give his life for us. See, Saul was the king that Israel deserved but didn't need. Jesus is the king we desperately need but don't deserve. And yet the Father sent him and gave him, and Jesus gave his life. And as we place our hope and trust in what Jesus has done for us, you know what he does? He removes our heart of stone, and he gives us a heart of flesh, and he puts his spirit in us so we can love him and serve him. The problem with Saul is he's prideful, and so are you and I. The problem with David is he's ordinary, and we feel that way a lot of the time. The problem with Samuel is he doesn't see people the way God does, and neither will we without God's help. The problem with me is my heart is desperately wicked and I can't change my own heart. But the solution for all was the true and better King, Jesus, who came to sit on the throne of our hearts to reign and rule, to make us his. Let's pray together this morning.